Well, um, shall we begin? This is, uh, I, I guess, the final class session of your odyssey <laughs> across American history. So I think you should give yourselves a hand just for having survived. Uh, You're almost at the end. <laughs> uh, and uh, after this, there's, a, there's dinner at 6. Uh, and there's some kind of discussion there or informal discussion there or something. But, but this is the last class uh, or discussions section that you have. So that's something to be celebrated. Um, our, our assignment today to end this um, long-running seminar uh, is to talk a little bit about the, uh, the other side of the political spectrum um, in 20th century American politics, namely conservatism and the rise of modern American uh, conservatism. Uh, we talked yesterday about two of the great moments of uh, last century's liberalism, namely the progressive era, especially as seen through the writings of uh, Woodrow Wilson, and then, the, and then the New Deal, seen through some speeches, one in particular by FDR. Um, today we'll continue to look at uh, political movements by looking at political figures, and in particular their words, in this case uh, Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush. Now, um, before we plunge into the right wing, are there, uh, we, are there any issues left over from our discussion of liberalism? that we want to uh, briefly uh, open up this afternoon. We didn't, of course, get to talk about the great society or late 20th century liberalism. That's uh, also a very interesting topic, but we just can't, we don't have time to talk about everything, I'm afraid. Uh, how liberalism has changed since the New Deal, and it has in some respects changed, although not, I would, I would say, fundamentally. But uh, are there any leftover questions, or, or should we just turn to talk about the rise of conservatism? Go ahead. F forward. All right, good. Um, uh, as I was saying uh, yesterday, if you, if you look at the 20th century as a whole, it is in many ways the liberal century, a century in which um, um, the political movement we've come to call liberalism was born and grew to power and became dominant. Um, its, its uh, greatest moments of domination are certainly shown in the tremendous electoral landslides associated with FDR and then with L Lyndon Johnson. If you look at 1932, 1936, um, 1940 even, when the little air was coming out of the balloon, those are still big victories, especially 32 and, of course, 36. Um, if you look at the um, uh, Lyndon Johnson's victory in 1964 when he flattened Barry Goldwater, the first uh, self-conscious flag bearer of the conservative movement, you would have thought that the rest of the 20th century surely would belong to a, to a resurgent liberalism, uh, that, the, uh, that, that uh, LBJ would carry the liberal flag uh, up and over the ramparts, and that this really would be a century of monolithic liberal progress. But instead, the, uh, instead of that story, a very different one, of course, unfolded. Even though Gary, uh, Barry Goldwater was crushed in the 1964 election, his defeat 
laid the groundwork for the eventual triumph of Ronald Reagan in 1980 and 1984, also large landslide uh, elections, though not as large as 64 or 1932 or 1936, to be sure. Um, Instead of 1964 being uh, a sort of the, uh, another great uh, moment in an ongoing triumph, 1964 was the high watermark of liberalism measured as an electoral and in some ways as a political movement uh, in the 20th century. In the years after that, uh, much of the intellectual momentum was on the right and eventually much of the political momentum also came from the right. But before talking about that and talking about Ronald Reagan in particular, let's back up just a moment and let me um, put some historical markers down about how conservatism came to be in this, uh, in this past century. Uh, I mentioned yesterday the 1912 election in which you had William Howard Taft who was clearly on what we would now call the right wing. You had Teddy Roosevelt who was clearly uh, on the left wing calling for all kinds of new measures of direct democracy and social justice. And you had Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was more or less in the center between those two other politicians and two other um, political, <coughs> political parties. What's interesting is of those three men, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and William Howard Taft, every single one of them called himself a progressive. Every single one of them thought of himself as uh, a member of the forward-thinking enlightened uh, liberal culture that was coming out of the progressive movement and the progressive um, uh, instinct, you might say. Nothing made William Howard Taft matter than when he was called by Teddy Roosevelt, in particular, a stand-patter, or, or that he was a reactionary bent on turning back the clock of history in some way. Uh, Taft just didn't understand himself. After all, Taft and Roosevelt had been best friends, had been political allies for many years, uh, had come up out of the same reform movement within the Republican Party. And the progressive movement, remember, was more a Republican than a Democratic movement. In fact, liberalism, you might say, as the second act of progressivism, didn't become essentially a Democratic Party movement until FDR. Uh, it's he who really turned the, the democracy into the party of modern liberalism. Uh, what made Taft mad about being called a conservative or a standpatter is that he did not think uh, that there was anything um, you know, politically or intellectually respectable in the term conservative that could not be found better and more richly in the term progressive. And by that I mean this. Um, you know, poor ha William Howard Taft, all 300 plus pounds of him, um, was very, uh, was, was in, uh, he just couldn't understand how Teddy, here's, here was Teddy Roosevelt calling him a reactionary and a stand patter. When Teddy Roosevelt was campaigning for direct democracy, initiative referendum recall, this is how Taft understood that issue. He said, it is, it is not progressive to call for direct democracy. It is reactionary. Teddy Roosevelt is attempting to go back to ancient Athens and in some respects to ancient Rome using these new techniques of direct democracy when history has shown that direct democracy doesn't work very well, that representative democracy is a great advance over all kinds of direct democracy. 
and that to be a progressive Taft thought meant to precisely to preserve the best of the past into the future. It meant to keep going forward, but in, in going forward, you have to carry with you all that is best about the past until such time as something better comes along. So he was a, you might say, uh, his own kind of a, uh, of a progressive in that self-definition. But it's not a crazy definition. Um, and it pointed out, however, for our, for our purposes today, what's interesting is he didn't want to become a conservative. He certainly didn't want to be part of a conservative movement or any kind of a conservative uh, reaction against progressivism and liberalism. It was not until the 1950s that American politics was ready, in a way, for self-conscious conservatives who were proud to call themselves conservative. It was not, it was not a term widely used as a party uh, or political attribute, certainly not meritoriously used, really until the second half of the 20th century. To give you some idea of how, uh, how the term came into common usage, you know, William F. Buckley Jr. wrote his first book just out of Yale called God and Man at Yale, uh, which was the first uh, of what would turn out to be many books by many people complaining about liberalism on college campuses. Uh, God and Man at Yale was an indictment of the socialistic tendencies of the economics department and the uh, atheistic or agnostic tendencies of the religion teachers um, at Yale. Um, since then, things have only gotten worse <laughs> for the conservative on campus. But um, in, um, in writing this book and in protesting against what he was already calling liberalism, for sure, what everyone knew as liberalism, Buckley did not call himself in 1951 a conservative. He called himself in this book an individualist, a Christian individualist didn't use the term conservative at all, really. But four years later, when he founded National Review, the first of the great conservative uh, journals uh, in 1955, uh, he called it a conservative journal. He had accepted the term as the preferred designation of this political movement, a term that he would be not embarrassed about, not self-conscious about, but would embrace and be proud of, and would make, of course, a kind of you know, household uh, word in American, uh, in American life. Now, where did the term come from? Um, Peter DeVries wrote a, a book which uh, used the term in its title in the, in the late 1940s, but we don't need to talk about that because I don't think it was directly uh, important. But a book by Russell Kirk called The Conservative Mind which was published in 1953, was probably the crucial book in actually um, ventilating this term and giving it a certain currency. Coming right between God and Man at Yale and the beginning of National Review, that was probably the single publishing event that helped to uh, put life into this term conservative and conservatism. Now, um, the conservative movement as it emerged in the 50s was already a kind of an amalgam. There were always at least two strains in the conservative um, intellectual movement, and uh, they're reflected more or less also in the conservative political movement. On the one hand, you have uh, so-called traditionalists, of whom Russell Kirk was one great, the first great 
um, example. Others uh, who would fall into this category would include uh, Richard Weaver, who was um, taught English at the University of Chicago, uh, uh, Robert Nisbet, the great sociologist at Columbia University, and there are others that one could uh, name. But what they saw and what they had in common, despite the variety among them, the traditionalists saw that Western civilization was under a kind of wholesale assault. And we are in danger of losing our appreciation of the tradition that had helped to make us what we are. And there was, of course, disagreement about what this tradition was. Um, Kirk's own book, The Conservative Mind, uh, was Anglo-American in its orientation. His heroes were not only a few Americans like John Adams and Orestes Brownson in the 19th century and Irving Babbitt later on, but Englishmen like Disraeli um, and, of course, Edmund Burke, whom he regarded as the first great conservative philosopher um, of the modern age. Uh, basically, Kirk and most of the traditionalists are Burkean in the sense that they take their orientation from Burke's indictment of the French Revolution in his great writings in the late 18th century, beginning with Reflections on the Revolution in France, his uh, primary screed against the uh, French revolutionaries. Um, Burke and, and, the, and the Kirkian Burkeans, um, who uh, picked up uh, on his thought, saw, that, uh, saw modern liberalism as something like the French Revolution, that is a, a highly ideological, abstract, rationalistic, um, imprudent movement to totally revolutionize our, our, the Western way of life and Western religion um, and Western tradition. And so they, as enemies of ideology, um, they supported not only the status quo, but in a way the, the intellectual heritage that lay behind the status quo. And indeed, in many respects, they were enemies of the actual status quo, which had already been revolutionized to some degree, they thought, too much. So that's one, one wing of modern conservatism. The other one, which was also present from the very beginning, uh, is libertarianism. We mentioned this. We joked about it um, yesterday. Um, libertarianism, one would identify, I think, uh, with, with also with a variety of figures, perhaps most prominently Friedrich Hayek, the Austrian economist who came to the University of Chicago and made the rest of his career there, and who wrote a very important book in 1944 called uh, The Road to Serfdom. That was a very important book coming before the war was over, uh, published in England originally, and then to great acclaim republished in the United States. Uh, he was an Austrian, as I mentioned. He's an Austrian economist who had, had fled the Germans and the, the Nazis and gone to uh, England to do his uh, work in the meantime. The argument of the road to serfdom was addressed, uh, as he's, uh, addressed to my fellow socialists, as he, uh, as he said in the beginning. And he, what he wanted to show was to all the well-meaning liberals uh, and uh, socialists in, in the Western world, and especially in England and America to a lesser extent, Hayek wanted to show that democratic socialism was a contradiction in terms. The argument of the road to serfdom is 
democratic, there's no such thing as democratic socialism. It might start democratic, but no socialism is fully possible with, because you're talking about directing the economic life and the economic freedom of millions and tens of millions of people from the center of the government. No socialism is possible without uh, more and more um, totalitarian accretions. Winston Churchill, when he ran for re-election, right at the, uh, at the end of World War II, uh, made, I suppose, what could have been the tactical mistake of quoting Hayek, quoting this book in his campaign against his enemies, who were in, had been in the National Unity Government, but were now running against him from the Socialist Party, the Labour Party of Great Britain. And he encapsulated, or he, uh, he reduced the teaching of Hayek's book to a single sentence when he said... Um, uh, there can be no socialism without a Gestapo. <laughs> and the, the, uh, the labor candidate, which is, a, which is a precise, I mean, that's exactly what the book argues. Um, the labor candidate retorted, perhaps more effectively than Churchill would have wished, that he didn't think that the British people needed to take advice on their political institutions from Mr. from Herr Friedrich August von Hayek. <laughs> <laughs> that is the author of the book that Churchill was uh, quoting. You know, so who is really more disloyal, you see? Uh, yes, ma'am. H-A-Y-E-K. A-Y-E-K. Anyway, so Hayek, Hayek's argument is um, if you really are going to own you know, the means of production uh, commonly, and if you're going to run the economy um, from the center, uh, you, are, you are taking away a very important liberty from a lot of people. And especially if most people, therefore, or many people even, end up working for the government, for government-owned steel industries, for government-owned railroads, for government-owned coal mines, uh, you create real problems of free speech and of the larger exercise of personal freedom. If the government is your employer, if the government writes your check, if the government hires and fires the bulk of uh, the individuals in the economy, how much freedom do you really have to criticize the government? How much freedom do you have to, um, uh, to innovate in business, um, to work on your own, to make more money than the other guy makes? Uh, there are all kinds of uh, losses of freedom, Hayek argued, that socialists don't like to talk about, but which are inevitable accompaniments of a true program of socialism in the economy. And so he wanted to argue, really, that democratic socialism was ultimately going to be indistinguishable from national socialism of the Nazi variety, and even from international socialism, or the worst parts of international <coughs> socialism as well. The key term is socialist. And what made, um, uh, he, he, he brought attention to the fact that the National Socialists in Germany were socialists, that that was an important part of the Nazi Party doctrine, and that uh, one mistakes them to think of them as uh, purely as nationalists or as sort of medieval reactionaries who were indifferent to the very latest economic uh, dogmas. The Germans had learned a lot from the Leninists, of course. And the Nazis had learned a lot from the experience of the Communist Party already in the first uh, 
few decades of the 20th century. Well, Hayek, there are other important libertarians who came along a little bit later. Uh, Milton Friedman, perhaps, is a name that uh, many of you would know, the father of uh, monetarist economics and one of the great advocates of, uh, of uh, economic liberty in the conservative uh, camp for the last uh, 50 years. He's now 93 years old, turning 94. He and Rose Friedman <laughs> still live in San Francisco and still uh, uh, talk and write uh, a little bit. Um, his, his, perhaps his most important popular book was um, published in 1962 called Capitalism and Freedom. Um, and if, if none of his other discoveries are sufficiently uh, interesting or rankling to you, there is the fact that Friedman is probably the first prominent economist and the first prominent um, libertarian in America to call for uh, voucher systems uh, in public education uh, or instead of public education. Uh, and uh, he is one of the leading critics of American public uh, schools and has been for the last 50 or so uh, years. So three cheers for Milton Friedman. Ready? <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Wrong. It's wrong. Wrong crowd. crowd, crowd. <laughs> Okay, um, um, the libertarians have a different agenda, obviously, than preserving tradition. Um, they're interested in furthering liberty, expanding liberty, and particularly the, liber the liberty to make market transactions, uh, voluntary transactions. And the credo of the libertarians is, uh, is capitalism, that is, um, as little regulation as possible, as freewheeling as possible, both because it will make everyone richer in the end and also because it makes everyone uh, freer in the meantime. Now, uh, the uh, traditionalism and libertarianism make unlikely bedfellows because those who are pushing freedom and capitalism are talking about you know, the constant transformation of society in pursuit of ever new kinds of businesses, entrepreneurial schemes, uh, and the, the devolution of power increasingly into the hands of uh, ordinary people. Um, the traditionalists are much more cautious about these things. Um, they believe in making sure, first of all, you conserve what is already good before you embark on any new experiments. They believe that freedom um, has its benefits, but also its costs. Um, and let's take an example. Say... Uh, pornography. Um, here the two camps would diverge pretty radically. Um, the libertarians believe that it's a, you know, it's a, uh, it, they don't necessarily like pornography, although there are some who do, uh, but, um, but, uh, it, but the, their position is if uh, it's a personal responsibility issue, if people don't want it in their homes, they don't have to have it in their homes, uh, if they don't want to watch it, they don't have to watch it. Uh, and, but if there's a market for it out there and it doesn't hurt anybody else uh, or doesn't violate anybody's rights, then there's no reason in the world to, to prohibit um, a market in uh, pornography. The traditionalists would have a very different view. Uh, they would argue that um, here, in a way, strange way, paralleling uh, a lot of uh, contemporary feminist arguments, uh, that uh, the pornography is... Uh, uh, an ugly thing, it's destructive of personal dignity, 
In particular, it, is, uh, uh, it, it turns women, usually, uh, into objects or objectifies women in a way that is degrading uh, to them. And it, um, it's an attack, traditionalists would say, upon the family. Uh, it is in a very intrusive and um, um, cancerous um, attack upon the stability and the integrity of uh, the traditional uh, family. All right, but nonetheless, uh, and you know, these two parts of conservatism came together because they had common enemies, which overshadowed their differences, and the common enemies were communism abroad and the New Deal state or the, uh, the, 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 the liberal state at home. Uh, because the liberal state at home was an enemy both of tradition and of personal liberty. And thus, as you know, the enemy uh, uh, of my enemy is my friend. And so the, uh, the libertarians and traditionalists joined hands as conservatives to oppose uh, liberalism. Now, one last um, uh, note on the sort of emergence of conservatism. About a decade later, in the 1960s, a third camp, uh, intellectual camp, was added to the conservative movement. And this is the so-called neoconservatives. In the, yeah, say, starting in the mid-60s to late-60s. Um, here, the most prominent thinkers would be uh, Irving Kristol, K-R-I-S-T-O-L, who um, is a professor for a time at NYU, uh, but who is better known as the founder of the Public Interest magazine, which was a quarterly public policy journal, which became enormously important. Uh, it was founded in 1965 as the as the as the as the place where all of, the, all of the most interesting empirical studies of the great society were published. And uh, increasingly, those were negative studies of the failures of great society programs, uh, either uh, for a variety of reasons, of course. The other name I would mention is Norman Podhoritz, who's, who, is, who, who was the editor of Commentary magazine, which is the the uh, magazine of the American Jewish Committee. Um, and uh, Podhoretz, uh, P-O-D-H-E-R-E-T-Z. Um, uh, um, both of them are still alive, but uh, not writing as much um, as they used to. Um, and Podhoretz, the commentary was especially prominent in agitating against the Soviet Union and in arguing against detente you know, the policy of a sort of uh, um, live and let live and, uh, and of sort of ratcheting down tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union, which was, the, which was advanced by uh, Henry Kissinger and especially by Richard Nixon in the presidencies of Richard Nixon and um, uh, Gerald Ford. So commentary cut its teeth really under Podhoretz attacking detente as an amoral, um, mistake, essentially, and pushing for a more highly moral uh, critique <coughs> of communist totalitarianism, a more vigorous and a more vigorous American foreign policy to back that up. 
you hear a lot about the neoconservatives today because they're supposed to, they're supposed to be running the foreign policy of the Bush administration. Um, but that's not, that's not the original neocons. That's the second generation of neocons. It's not, it's not, Bill, it's not uh, Irving Kristol. It's Bill Kristol, his son, the editor of the Weekly Standard magazine here in Washington, who is um, on Fox News a lot and who is, uh, you know, one of the chief architects of at least uh, a part of the, I suppose it's not too much to say, one of the chief architects of part of the president's foreign policy or at least the thinking that informs his uh, foreign policy. We're, we'll come to George W. Bush in, uh, in a moment. Any, uh, any questions about any of this? Anybody want to? Yes, sir. I'm used to the term social conservatives and laissez-faire conservatives. Yes. Are these synonyms, or are we talking about somewhat Very good, very good question. Well, I'm talking, these are really intellectual movements. They have political counterparts, as I think I mentioned. Um, you have social conservatives, or, uh, or, I mean, the original traditionalists are not really religious conservatives in the, in the sense in which uh, most voter, many voters are now religious conservatives, let's say. Um, but, but broadly speaking, the, um, the small intellectual movement of traditionalists helped to uh, prepare the way for the large number of actual ordinary Americans who consider themselves to be religious and conservative. The, relig the actual, I mean, we're talking about small groups of intellectuals here in the beginning. If you're talking about voting behavior, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the religious right doesn't really exist until after the, um, well, it doesn't come into its own until after the abortion decision in 1973, Roe v. Wade. Um, it had begun, I mean, the stirrings of the religious right were certainly there in the anti-communist movement on campuses, the Campus Crusade for Christ, one of these things that was very important in the 1950s, the 1960s. Um, but it, it, it wasn't a huge voting movement, really, until after the prayer decisions in the, in the 60s and especially after the abortion decision in 1973. Um, economic conservatives have always been there, have always been an important part of the Republican conservative coalition. And they are, they're not all libertarians, but, they're, but they, you can say intellectually to the extent they have any source, uh, of their of the way they think about politics is probably some it is probably libertarian um, in general. So, yeah. so if I'm understanding you, libertarianism would be the brainchild or the foundational structure for the, what I'm calling the laissez-faire conservatives. Yes, that's right. And, that's and right. The social conservatives would be the foundational structure, the brainchild for the social conservatives. That's right. Thank you. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Aren't the is if is the libertarian group that you're talking about the same as the libertarian party that exists today in the United States, which are very liberal socially? Yes. I mean legalization of marijuana, all yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. But no, well, the, the, conservative. the libertarian party is a very small, um, mm -hmm. f fairly you know radical group of libertarians that. Um, most libertarians would, sh would sympathize with, however, most of the positions of the Libertarian Party. But most libertarians are, um, um, are, are not prepared, I mean, politically speaking, most libertarians are not prepared to be so pure as to vote only for a candidate of the Libertarian Party. I mean, as, a, as an effective political force, they're prepared to influence and vote for candidates in the Republican 
party. You know, one, one other cautionary note, I suppose, here is um, one can make, you know, uh, you know, teachers who read, who read books and, and think about people who write books um, can overthink politics in some ways. I mean, the truth is that although we're doing this nice taxonomy of kinds of conservatives, the average conservative voter is both an uh, economic conservative and a social conservative. They, there isn't, I mean, the civil war, you sometimes hear about these great battles being fought within the party, and sometimes there are battles being fought in the Republican Party, but the truth is that the majority of Republicans have a foot in each camp, really. Yeah. Yes, sir? <laughs> Where would I stick him? Well, let's see. Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Well, um, okay. Let, let me let's talk about the neocons because that's where you that's where he would come up. I, I think in the standard sort of account of these things. Um, who, who are the neocons? First of all, um, Irving Kristol famously defined them as uh, liberals who've been mugged by reality. Um, that is to say, most of the neocons started out as um, uh, university professors, often at very distinguished places, who, were, uh, who had voted for Lyndon Johnson in 1964 and who were basically centrist liberals, anti-communist liberals uh, for most of their careers. But uh, they were they revolted at the, at, towards the end of the 1960s when the kids on their campuses began to uh, revolt and to demand concessions from the administrations at, at Cornell, at Columbia, at um, Berkeley, and at many other campuses around the country. And they were, these neocons were especially dismayed not only by the fact that the kids were... Um, uh, you know, willing to uh, use force in some cases to get their ways, and it's the, f the famous example of Cornell, where the you know the Black Panthers were walking around with rifles at one point um, in their in their protests. Um, but they were also very dismayed by the fact that their liberal colleagues would not stand up for the, what they regarded as the traditional academic values of freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, um, no political correctness. Um, you know, that you should be able to more or less research any subject and talk about it freely uh, in a university environment. You shouldn't have to declare your opposition to the Vietnam War to be regarded as a legitimate member of the campus and so forth and so on. So the fact that, the fact that most of their colleagues in the faculties of these campuses uh, supinely accepted the new, the new left uh, demands and capitulated to them, uh, filled the neocons with, uh, as I say, dismay and a certain kind of revulsion at what was going on. What they, they thought the, what was, I mean, they were liberals, and what is liberal society if not, uh, you know, epitomized by the university where you have freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, freedom of research, all of which, you know, were under assault when deans could be forcibly carried out of the campus uh, administrative building and thrown onto the grass outside of it and in which, you know, uh, bombs were going off and fires were being started and protests were filling the streets and emptying the classrooms. 
So the neocons came from a very different place than the traditionalists or the um, libertarians did. They were newcomers. They were former Democrats, basically, who were moving right, um, not out of any great uh, embrace of capitalism, not out of any great um, anxiety about um, you know tr tradition with a capital T, but simply because they saw the the ordinary foundations of liberal society under assault from radicalism. And they didn't think that just as their own faculties could not stand up to them, so the Democratic Party was not standing up to them, epitomized above all by the nomination of George McGovern in 1972, which was the, um, a critical moment in which, um, which drove many of the neocons out of the Democratic Party and uh, into the arms of the Republicans. Yes, sir. I'm Kennedy Strauss, but okay. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. And so in, like, let's say in 1776, then, would these people are interested in being like, why was Well, not exactly. I mean, yes, in the sense that they, they occupy privileged, privileged positions of power in the sense of being university professors at very prestigious campuses, many of them. Um, but not, I mean, they had a peculiarly um, um, academic kind of mind, I think, which is different from you know what you're talking about in the in the revolutionary period. Um, and they may have been well. I don't know. It's hard to think of an analog in the revolutionary period exactly to them. Um, I mean, you think of George Witherspoon at Princeton, but he was. Um, he was more conservative than these people would have been um, to begin with, I think. Um, but who are these people? I mean, Irving Crystal, I, I mentioned a couple of names. But great social scientists like Daniel Bell, who you know, wrote this book on the cultural contradictions of capitalism, which was a very big thing in the 70s. Um, and, uh, uh, James Q. Wilson, perhaps the most famous social scientist in America right now who's written on crime inequality. He's the author of the so-called broken windows policy of policing that apparently helped turn New York, uh, New York around under Giuliani who put this broken windows policy into practice and so forth. Anyway, one could name a whole bunch of uh, distinguished academics who were these uh, neocons. Now, um, among them were some students of Leo Strauss. And uh, since the question was asked, I'll briefly say, who is Leo Strauss? Um, um, Leo Strauss is the um, puppet master behind the spread of global democracy around the world. No, no, that's not really true. That's, that's, that's the charge um, against him. Uh, Leo Strauss was um, perhaps the, the single greatest... Um, figure in the recovery of political philosophy as a living uh, discipline and, and field um, in the 20th century. He was a German refu Jewish refugee from Germany, fleeing the Nazis who came first to England and then to the New School in New York and finally to the University of Chicago, where he spent the bulk of his career. Um, and he uh, um, was himself not very political in the sense that he didn't really write about contemporary politics. He wrote books about 
um, Plato and Aristotle, Xenophon, Machiavelli, Hobbes and Locke, uh, the, great, the greatest figures in the great tradition of political theorizing. Uh, and uh, among the things that he did was sort of revive the case for the ancients, um, the notion that Plato and Aristotle had some, something to teach us besides, uh, or we, we could, uh, to put it differently, we had something we could learn from them, not just learn about them uh, in our studies of them, that they were, had a certain kind of political wisdom that was still uh, useful to us. Um, and importantly, he helped to revive the notion, the whole notion of natural law or natural right, natural rights, to use any, pick any one of these terms. I'm using them very loosely at this point. To revive the notion that there is such a thing as natural justice of the sort that the American founders were talking about in the Declaration of Independence when they said all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights meaning certain rights that come directly from their nature. Now, this link between nature and right, or between what is and what ought to be, between a fact, what kind of animal we are, and a value, how we should treat one another, uh, Strauss tried to show that that connection was intellectually respectable. Whereas much of... 19th century philosophy and 20th century philosophy has been devoted to trying to argue that that connection is untenable and that, as you, I'm sure, have heard, you can't go from a fact to a value. You can't go from a statement uh, like, um, this is ice cream, to a statement which says, chocolate is the best kind of ice cream. Because one expresses a fact and the other expresses a value. And what, what Strauss tried to argue was that um, not all value questions are whimsical, like whether you prefer chocolate ice cream to pistachio ice cream. Um, the difference between justice and injustice, between treating people as equals and enslaving them as radically unequal or bestial compared to the person doing the enslaving, that difference is not a mere question of value or whim, that there is something um, in the nature of man which should lead you upon reflection not to treat others who are your equal as though they are not your equal, as though they were brutes put here for your pleasure or your benefit. Yeah. Uh, and that becomes very important because one of the things that's interesting about George W. Bush, actually, um, is that he has been, uh, he is the president who has most dramatically and visibly revived the rhetoric of natural rights um, in the 20th century, uh, or since, since I would say um, Calvin Coolidge, probably. Uh, we'll see that Reagan does talk about them, uh, but Bush has really made them, put them front and center again in American political discourse. A president has not talked about natural rights as much, uh, you could say almost since uh, Abraham Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson. It's very unusual. He really is talking a, um, um, an old-fashioned political language that, um, that for the, and also what's, what's interesting about him is that it's not primarily directed to domestic policy. 
which is the context of most prior uses of um, natural rights arguments in American politics, but emphatically to foreign policy, that uh, every human being in the world has the same nature, has the same rights, ought to live under a democracy, therefore, and that by God we should do everything we can to make sure that most of them do live under a democracy. And his justification for that is really his reading, his understanding of this, the, the duties imp implicit in natural rights. Uh, and uh, he, he certainly did not learn that directly from Leo Strauss, but uh, I think the, you could say there is a kind of intellectual uh, line that can be drawn from Strauss to some of his students, to some of their students, to some of Bush's um, advisors. There is, there is a kind of line that can be drawn there. Uh, Strauss himself was not, I mean, of course, was, was very far from being a, a guy who thought that the world could be or should be easily democratized. Um, he was, um, uh, that, was not, that was not his purpose, and it, it was something he thought, I think, w that would be impossible. Um, because uh, people, not every people is suited for democracy, I think would be his his understanding um, of that. We, but let, let's raise these questions in a moment when we come to George W., uh, I think. But yeah, so there is, the, the neocons uh, had a certain Straussian tinge to them, although I would not say that Strauss or Straussianism was essential to the neocon um, position or its self-understanding. Other questions? Okay. From all this, let's just conclude the following, that um, conservatism uh, made up of, a, of uh, out of sources of great intellectual diversity, none, nonetheless came together as a resourceful and powerful political movement in opposition to its very powerful and dominating political enemies. <laughs> well, it's that and more. Um, all right, that brings us then to Ronald Reagan. Um, Reagan is the, f the first great success uh, in conservative uh, politics, uh, the first conservative president, really, um, in the, uh, in the la latter 20th century. Uh, Nixon doesn't really count as a conservative, by the way, from the point of view of conservatives themselves, who are always very uneasy with him. Uh, and um, although um, liberals, needless to say, like to count Nixon as a conservative, uh, conservatives uh, are just as glad to pass on that particular honor. Yes? Don't conservatives consider Reagan the one who funded the Great the, the New Deal? What? The New Deal Excuse was me, don't by FDR, but the yeah. funding for it actually came in under Nixon. Under Nixon oh, under Nixon. Oh, well, yes. I mean, Nixon, um, well, Nixon expanded the welfare state yes. um, as much as, uh, um, not as much programmatically as uh, LBJ did, but he put more money into it than LBJ did. I mean, yeah. The, I, I got my term yeah. wrong. The yeah. Great Society. The Great Society, yeah. He didn't yeah. fund the New Deal, he funded the Great Society. No, no, that's right, yeah. No, I mean, after all, I mean, <laughs> Richard Nixon imposed wage and price controls 
in America when inflation reached the intolerable level of 4% or so. This was before it reached, you know, 18% under Jimmy Carter later on in the uh, decade of the, that wonderful decade of the 1970s. Yes? That's actually a Reagan line, which uh, Ford uh, borrowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ford, but Ford was a, um, Ford was a sort of, you know, uh, moderately conservative president, no doubt about it. But of course, Ronald Reagan challenged him in 1976 in the Republican primary, pre precisely because he wasn't conservative enough, and in particular, he wasn't, um, he wasn't anti-Soviet. Enough. He did not have a vigorous enough foreign policy against the Soviets. You know, so Reagan came very close to up, upset, uh, you know, upsetting him at the uh, Republican convention in Kansas City in that year. That's really the last time that a challenger really came close to uh, beating uh, an incumbent uh, president for renomination. I think Chevy. I think I, I think Ford is now remembered more by by means of Chevy Chase's impression of him yeah. <laughs> than by anything he actually did while in office. <laughs> Although he did pardon Nixon, of course. I uh, pardon uh, Nixon, yeah, which was uh, memorable. <laughs> okay, let's, let's talk about some of Reagan's speeches then. Um, now, we've got a, uh, a sort of interesting selection of Reagan over the years, beginning with his... Um, famous speech in 1964 on behalf of Goldwater's presidential candidacy. This is the speech that launched Ronald Reagan's own political career. Um, two years later, he would run for, well, really, starting the next year, he would run for governorship of California and be very handily elected over Pat Brown uh, in 1966. Um, let's go to page 781. Well, actually, let's start at 777, the bottle, the bottom of 777. The problem, of course, with teaching history is every day there's more of it. <laughs> uh, and not only do, you know, do our students get younger every year, um, but uh, they know less and less of what, uh, you know, they, their, their starting point is farther and farther down the line, which is very frustrating. So the things you, you look for in common with them from which you can begin to teach them become newer and newer. Uh, and somehow or another, we know them less well. You know, who can keep up with, with uh, you know, music groups uh, favored by the young? I mean, that's a, that's a full-time uh, job right there. And who would want to? Yeah, that's the other problem. So Reagan is now ancient history uh, for um, our students. Uh, so it, it's, it's important for us to try to remember and recreate a little bit the atmosphere uh, which surrounds these speeches and, of course, to, to do justice to the speeches uh, themselves. So if you look at the bottom of page 777, the very last uh, sentence, this is very Reagan-esque. Uh, whether we believe in our capacity for self-government, this is the issue of the election, whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution 
and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. And then if you flip to 781, just to sort of complete this thought, almost the very middle of the page, in the midst of that paragraph that begins as a former Democrat, down towards the end he says, somewhere a perversion has taken place. Our natural inalienable rights are now considered to be a dispensation of government, and freedom has never been so fragile, so close to slipping from our grasp as it is at this moment. All right, this is... um, this is authentic Reaganism, and this is how he ran his campaign. Uh, he, this was 1964, but this is really the theme on which he ran his campaign in 1980, that the, the, the American Revolution was slipping out of our grasp, that government of the people was being usurped by a government of experts uh, ruling us from Washington in an increasingly authoritarian way without our... Uh, consent, and that in so doing they were neglecting the basic functions of government under the Constitution, especially the national defense, but also the, uh, the maintenance of a free and robust um, economy. Uh, Reagan actually would run in uh, 1980 and even more so in 1984, calling for a second American revolution. It's a term he used. Uh, in capitals, a second American revolution which would have the effect of restoring, you might say, constitutional government, restoring the values of the Declaration of Independence or the the principles of the Declaration of Independence to America. So here's a good example of how conservatism more or less understood, uh, more or less understood what had happened to it, what had happened to America in the course of the 20th century. Woodrow Wilson, FDR, the sort of intellectual break um, that had occurred in the uh, beginning years of the uh, modern liberal movement. They knew something had gone wrong. The state had grown enormously past what they thought its constitutional limitations were, Reagan and the conservatives thought, uh, and we needed to get it back. We needed to return to... um, our original founding faith, as it were. Now, um, what's interesting is that Reagan didn't really get a second American Revolution. The term that came out of the Reagan years, which he himself eventually began to use, but which others used certainly uh, more uh, prominently and eagerly than he did, was not a second American Revolution, but a Reagan Revolution the Reagan Revolution. Um, I, I think if you, if you thought about that, you would see that that, in a way, was a great disappointment. It, 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 the use of the term Reagan Revolution was, in a way, a kind of, although not many people, if anyone maybe, understood this at the time, really was an admission of failure, that he had not been able to turn the government around or to recapture its lost principles in the way of a second American Revolution, but instead had made a kind of, he had made a difference, obviously, in the purposes and the direction of government and so forth, but it was, an, an indifferent, it was a difference that was intimately linked to him and to his leadership. 
right? People, I mean, people talk about the American Revolution. They don't talk about, let's think about this, they don't talk about the Jeffersonian Revolution. They don't talk about the Lincolnian Revolution in the 19th century. But here we are talking about a Reagan Revolution at the end of the 20th century. Um, now, I would say in a way, um, you know, one of the interesting things about Reagan is that he was, of course, a master uh, political personality and a, a great spokesman for the conservative uh, position. Um, but in many ways, he was a Wilsonian in his style, in his leadership style, um, and in his conception of what his job as president was going to be. Um, probably no president gave more speeches from the Oval Office to the nation on television um, than Reagan did in his two terms in office. Um, appealing directly to the people, uh, rallying them to put pressure on their congressmen to enact uh, various kinds of uh, needed conservative reforms and so forth. You know, Reagan's famous line was, if you can't make them, that is the Congress, see the light, at least you can make them feel the heat. And so he would always call upon uh, voters to you know, telegram, phone, annoy their congressmen, uh, however they could to make clear to them how they're supposed to vote on these things. Well, that's a very Wilsonian strategy. It means going around the separation of powers, appealing directly to the people over the heads of Congress, uh, rallying them to put pressure outside the normal channels of the separation of powers uh, upon their congressmen. As such, it's right out of TR's playbook. It's right out of Woodrow Wilson's playbook. Now, it's true Reagan was trying to use these, um, you might say, progressive means for conservative ends. He was trying to use them to cut down the size of the state, to lower taxes, to increase spending on national defense, um, to roll back the Soviet Union. Uh, but there's a sense in which, in the end, um, the means proved maybe not as important as the ends, but the means persisted and colored his achievement. Um, and I, therefore, in some ways, I think uh, Reagan is a, has to be a sort of disappointment to Reaganism because the size of the government, although it was not really permanently cut back, although the rate of taxation fell enormously, um, you know, when Reagan came into office, uh, the top marginal tax rate, income tax rate, was uh, 70%. That had already been reduced over the, by John F. Kennedy. When, when Kennedy came into office in 1961, the highest marginal tax rate on income tax was 90%. But it had been at 70 ever since John F. Kennedy's uh, reform. Reagan took it down from 70 to 50, and then in his second term from 50 to 35 or so. It has since crept back up to 38 to 40 or, or so, the top marginal income tax rate. But nonetheless, going from 70 to 35 and below was a tremendous uh, change in fiscal policy. Um, and he, whatever 
the merits of Reaganomics, it's certainly the case that he did manage to end the, uh, he and the Federal Reserve managed to end the stagflation um, of the 1970s, which really had stymied the, the Keynesians and in a way brought an end to self-confident liberal economists. Um, you don't actually, it's, it's one of the great changes in American politics since the 19, uh, early 1980s is really the victory of uh, a certain kind of Reagan, Reagan-esque or, or, or uh, neo-Reagan-esque economic uh, thought. So that you don't hear anyone anymore talking about um, spending, either raising taxes back to 70%. I mean, that's not on anybody's agenda, no matter, uh, you know, not Hillary Clinton's, not any major figure in the Democratic Party. You don't hear about spending, you know, Marshall plans for the American cities, um, as you did in the 1960s and the 1970s. I mean, simply many items that were previously on the agenda of American politics are not anymore because of Reagan's achievement and his um, enduring impact. But the, the more interesting question is, um, did Reagan accomplish what Reagan wanted to accomplish, I think? Or did he succeed in making the deep kind of uh, reform that would have actually limited American government in a, not only in, the, in its revenue intake in the taxation side, but in the spending side? And, and on that, even though he did make some attempt, he certainly did not succeed. Um, government uh, spent more uh, when he left than it did when he came in, of course, because the economy had grown enormously uh, while he was president. Um, but more importantly, or, or perhaps more s um, symbolically, you could say, he came into office asking for the abolition of two cabinet departments, Two whole, brand, two whole parts of the government, the Department of Energy and the Department of uh, Education. Uh, by the time he left office, not only had neither of these departments been abolished, but a 13th one had been added, uh, the Department of Veteran Affairs. Yes? No, it was based on his constitutionalism. I mean, what he meant by the Second Revolution was an attempt to sort of go back to a more limited government, to something that's closer to what he thought the original in understanding in the Constitution was. Um, and that's, uh, it's against that standard, which is a very high standard, that I think you'd have to say Reagan did not succeed. Um, on many other, by many other standards, and all sort of um, uh, practical standards, he, of course, was a great success, uh, and was successful enough to bring his vice president, George H.W. Bush, into office uh, after him, even though Bush, 41, was a much less compelling political figure uh, than Reagan had been. He had the problem with the vision thing, as we said uh, yesterday. Questions? Okay, let's. Um, I want to look um, at the second inaugural address, if I may.
And this is on 805. Eight oh five. If you look at the third paragraph, full paragraph, uh, eighty four is a re-election campaign. This is the sort of so-called "Morning in America" campaign. That was from the uh, slogan on his political commercials, it's morning in America. Uh, that is a sort of a new dawn for the uh, United States. Um, these will be years, he says, when Americans have restored their confidence and tradition of progress. That's a sort of tradition of progress, so you have it both ways. When our values of faith, family, work, and neighborhood were restated for modern age. When our economy was finally freed from government's grip, when we made sincere efforts at meaningful arms reduction, rebuilding our defenses, our economy, and developing new technologies and help preserve peace in a troubled world, when Americans courageously supported the struggle for liberty, self-government, and free enterprise throughout the world and turned the tide of history away from totalitarian darkness and into the warm sunlight of human freedom. All right, so uh, here he's taking credit uh, for the developments of the first term. Yes, sir. Oh, sorry. This is uh, 806. Did I not say that? I'm sorry. Second page of the speech, yeah. Our values of faith, family, work, and neighborhood. You know, one of the important things in Reagan's political success and in conservatism's rise was bringing over the so-called Reagan Democrats into the Republican Party. These were mostly uh, Catholic and ethnic voters in uh, blue-collar cities in, in uh, Michigan, in, in, in the middle of the country, in Pennsylvania, uh, and in uh, other uh, sort of working-class, uh, old-economy, um, well, not necessarily old-economy states. Um, and they stayed mostly in the Republican Party, giving them uh, not really a majority, but certainly parity for the first time in a long time with the Democratic Party. This was another side of the disappointment, I think, of the Reagan years as far as conservatives were concerned, that even though he won two great electoral victories in 1980 and 1984, he was not able to create a stable conservative majority in American politics. Um, he had brought with him a conservative Senate in 1980, but that slipped from the, from the Republicans' hands in 1986, not to return for a while. Uh, and he was never able to win a Republican majority in the House, although he came, uh, um, although there were enough conservative Southern Democrats still left in the House in those days that he had a kind, for a while at least, he had a sort of controlling, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, de facto. Uh, majority, uh, maybe in his first, two, maybe in the first two years or so of his uh, of his term, but the truly great revolutions in American politics all involve the emergence of a new majority party, or at at any rate a, a new majority coalition, maybe in the existing uh, majority party. If you think back to 1800 and Thomas Jefferson's great 
victory, you know, smashing the Federalist Party for good, essentially. If you think to 1860 and 1864, when Abraham Lincoln um, brought the, became the first Republican president to win the presidency and brought with him a Republican Congress. Um, if you think of 1932 and 1936, when FDR swept the Republicans out of office after three generations of dominance uh, by the Republicans and brought with him an enormous majority in the Senate and in the, particularly in the House of Representatives. Those are really turning points in American politics. And looking back now, historically, politically, at the Reagan Revolution, the question is, how much of a turning point was it? Uh, you know, in retrospect, it, it looks increasingly like it was not a turning point comparable to the New Deal or the election of Lincoln or Jefferson's <laughs> Revolution of 1800. It certainly moved American politics to the right, and American politics has basically stayed to the right uh, of center ever since then. Um, but it, it did not create a lasting and stable Republican majority in the legislature, in the national government, and across the country. And so by that very, admittedly very high standard, Reaganism seems to have fallen short. One reason may have been precisely the fact that increasingly as he was president, he moved away from um, a more radical agenda of sort of uh, the second American Revolution, and began to talk more about the things in the second line of that paragraph. Our values of faith, family, work, and neighborhood. These, these values are things that we can share across party lines, Democrats, as well as Republicans. Um, and there was no intimate or inevitable connection between the Republican Party and the defense um, of these values as such. Um, in any case, one would have to say he was never able to bring a political realignment into completion in his two terms uh, of office. Now that brings us to George W. Bush, finally. Say what you will about George W. Bush, say what you will about compassionate conservatism. He has been able to do something that even Reagan was not able to do, namely deliver a a Republican Congress and a Republican presidency, not just uh, once, but uh, sustained over his two terms, at least until we see what happens in November. <laughs> We're three quarters of the way through his, uh, his two terms. Um, but, of course, George W. Bush has um, redefined conservatism a bit from uh, Reagan's terms to what he calls, George W. calls, compassionate conservatism. Now, looking at um, the wide sample of his speeches that we, we have in front of us, would someone like to say, what is compassionate conservatism? What's the difference between compassionate conservatism and the, the uh, Reaganite kind? or the pre-existing kind? We don't need to balance the budget. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he said, we don't need to balance the budget. 
Well, actually, uh, Reagan didn't balance the budget either, so there's, that's not a difference uh, between them. What does, what does the adjective compassionate add to or subtract from conservatism? Or maybe I should rephrase that. Does it add to or subtract from? Which is it? Conservatism. Add? What does it add? Uh, what, it, what does it tell you as a voter? What is George Bush trying to tell you? Okay, all right. Um, and what, uh, what concretely, how does that concretely manifest itself, do you think? I mean, d does a program come to mind or any particular kind of effort come to mind in that category? Yes. Okay, faith. All right, the faith-based initiative, right. Uh, anything else come to mind? Yes, sir. Hasn't there been uh, a statement made defining it as a hand, hand up instead of a hand out? <laughs> yes, that's right, yeah. A hand up, not a hand out. Now, what does that mean, though? Uh, empowering, empowering. Empowering, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. So, yeah, what does that tell... Here's the question. It's coming out of these comments. What about the, the ethic of entitlement? Is compassionate conservatism friendlier to that or less friendly to that than conservatism by itself is? Right, the prescription drug benefit, yeah. That's, that's the first new federal entitlement since the Great Society. But it doesn't help very many people very much. Yeah. And it's so convoluted and arcane to figure out that people don't know which end is straight up who are trying to use it. Right. Oh, there are a few wrinkles to be ironed out. <laughs> <laughs> no one's denying that, yes. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. If conservatives have kind of taken traditionally liberal economics, which is like non-government involvement in the marketplace, I would I would interpret compassion to mean government not interfering in the marketplace, but making sure that some of the more egregious injustices of the marketplace are dealt with in a way that like takes care of. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's what compassionate conservative suggests, you think? That's how I'd like it to be. I yeah. Think, I don't think, I don't think I see that happen, right. Well, even, um, I mean, no, not, not Ronald Reagan, certainly not anyone after him has, has tried to, has in any sense actually tried to um, um, dismantle the safety net, as Reagan used to call it. Um, it was, it, I mean, the only genuine change, there have been two genuine changes in American um, entitlement programs 
since Reagan. One was, in, one was the welfare reform bill in, in 96 enacted under Clinton, which rolled back, uh, which <coughs> dismantled the first federal entitlement program um, in American history and returned you know, that part of unemployment insurance to the states. That was undoing an original part of the, the uh, New Deal. That program went back to the New Deal, which, had, which Clinton returned to the states. And the second thing was Bush's addition of a new entitlement program, namely for prescription drugs. Yes? I think that you can see the definition of the total. It always go back to the primary source documents. So if you look ah, at yes. the inaugural address, yes. I think there are some, some points that you can look at. That he realizes that, he says on, on the bottom of 820, America at its best is compassionate. In the quest of American conscience, we know that deep, persistent poverty is unworthy of our nation's promise. But he doesn't see the solution as only a solution for the government. If you look on the top of 821, he mm -hmm. says, yet compassion is the work of a nation, not just the government. And some needs and hurts are so deep, they will only respond to a winter's touch or a pastor's prayer. Church and charities, synagogues and mosques lend our communities their humanity, and they will have an honored place in our plans and in our laws. So there's a scene that there's a community out there that it's not only the role of the government, but communities can also go, going back to a more traditional idea where in the past there weren't these social service programs. Mm -hmm. It was the work of the community and it was work with public churches to, to help the poor and the needy. Right, okay. Um, yes, ma'am. Uh, he also makes the spiritual, but the biblical reference to Jericho. He talks about a lot of the same Mother Teresa. So he's saying mm -hmm. spiritual connection too. And then at the end, he goes back to the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. So he's, he's going back to those intrinsic values of natural values mm -hmm. of the Bible. That, that's almost a little bit like Mm-hmm. All right. Is, is compassionate conservatism, therefore, a good thing or a bad thing? It's not very compassionate. It's not compassionate enough. For you, <laughs> but you have a lot of compassion. <laughs> yeah. um, to talk about what it aspires to be, maybe yeah. what it has uh -huh. turned out to be. It's the idea that contrary to what a lot of liberals think, conservatives aren't sitting around saying, "Ooh, how can we screw the poor to death?" But they're looking for methods to use sort of conservative means uh, economically mm -hmm. and socially to achieve the same compassionate ends that a liberal might want to achieve, but has been using methods that perhaps have not been successful over the past 30 or 40 years. And so um, here he's going to channel using, going back to using uh, uh, charities and, and maybe the government will be involved because we'll be funding these charities, but they will be allowed to do some of the you know, prison fellowship mm -hmm. and that type of to free up the free enterprise system by lowering tax rates and capital gains so that people can retain their own money. So it's the idea of using conservative ends to achieve compassionate, conservative means to achieve compassionate ends. Mm. Or is it using compassionate means to achieve conservative ends, I guess? That's, I mean, that would be a question, obviously. But, well, what's... Um, Let's take the faith-based initiative. What's conservative about funneling uh, federal welfare money through churches? Yeah. Well, 
Who, which, who lost? Uh, prison Belgium. Oh. They, I think it was in Indiana. It was in Indiana, in Indiana uh, the ACLU sued because right. they were a Right. Well, of course, one of the problems has been when you take government money, it creates First Amendment separation issues under contemporary constitutional law. So it was, it was always unclear whether the faith-based initiative would drive faith out of the uh, church's social programs or would you know, be a way for faith to come back into the public square uh, after having been rudely kicked out of it for many years by Supreme, various Supreme Court uh, decisions. But it, it sounds like, I mean, and, and I know a few of the other presidents, that um, it hasn't gone so well <laughs> with, with the faith-based initiative constitutionally. Uh, there's still some questions there. Yes, sir. One of the other things was the infrastructure was already set up Well, um, the, um, is the purpose of compassionate conservatism therefore to change conservatism in some way? To make it better or more palatable? I mean, to, to a libertarian conservative, let's say, giving tax money, uh, using, giving tax money to yet another sector of society for them to use uh, is not necessarily uh, an improvement. Right, um, and the you know the administration has come under a lot of criticism by libertarians, precisely because it has not controlled spending well and has uh, you know has not vetoed a single bill until this stem cell bill, which just uh, which just was vetoed, and th that was a you know a very long time without a veto of any kind of spending bill. Yeah. They're worried. Yes, right. Yeah, they're worried that the beams may cross. Yeah. Right. Well, let, I mean, let's face it. First Amendment law is a. Uh, it's a. That's a whole other course. Um, but the establishment law is is incredibly convoluted and and incoherent, I would say, today. Um, and if you look at the recent decisions of the court on establishment cases or even on free exercise cases, it's it is a tremendous mess. It promotes the common 
Right. Uh, Well, it, um, they would seem to be, I mean, they would seem to be parallel. Yeah, you're right, yeah. No, they would seem to be parallel, I mean, except that schools are one of those areas where there is a well-established First Amendment um, history of litigation. And, and social service, social, one, of the, one of the reasons why they can get away with trying the social service route is that there haven't been any major cases about it in the past. But the education from long before Brown v. Board to today, I mean, there's been a tremendous history of litigation, including increasingly in First Amendment free exercise and establishment cases. I mean, just think back to the number of cases, you know, can a speaker at the high school graduation um, intone a prayer? Can he do it voluntarily? Or, you know, can it be a moment of silence? Can it, you know, they've just been, they've been running, chasing this uh, rabbit for a long time. Well, Congress is not bound by the Constitution. That's, <laughs> we've, we've established that long ago in, <laughs> in our politics. All right, uh, before we, uh, our time completely expires, let's, let's say something about one other part of the Bush legacy. Um, there are really two parts of it. Two, you know, one is the compassionate conservatism, and the other is spreading democracy. The other is the war in Iraq and the response to 9-11. Uh, to <coughs> So if we'll look um, at the second inaugural address of George W., uh, page 861. Uh, the two big uh, paragraphs are on the first page here. 861. Uh, if you look at the one, two, three, four, fifth paragraph down, here you have one statement. We are led by events and common sense to one conclusion. The survival of liberty in our land increasingly depends on the success of liberty in other lands. The best hope for peace in our world is the expansion of freedom in all the world. And then if you skip a paragraph... So, it is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world. Okay, now, what do you think of that? Okay. What what do you what do you think? Um, how would how would Lincoln, or Hamilton, or Madison, or any one of the early figures that you've talked about react to this? What would they think of this as a goal of American foreign policy, Mark? I see a lot of parallel with Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bear any burden, yeah. fight any foe, right? Right. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I'm having trouble aligning his policy of spreading natural rights 
Okay, that's that's fair enough. And in, in most of American history, that's that's more or less the way it was understood. I think you're you're right about that. That's the way John Quincy Adams would have understood it, for example. But of course, I mean the 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 doctrine depends in part upon the factual assertion that we can't be safe in unlike the way it was in the 19th century, we can't be safe now because they the terrorists can strike us here without using a state intermediary, without a declaration of war, and with potentially with weapons of, you know, terrible, uh, terrible lethality. Yes? I think, from my study of Lincoln, I think Lincoln would say, we have no legal standing mm -hmm. to be trying to impose that what we should be doing is trying to create standing in uh, uh, a, a, a world forum if we're really interested in pursuing that avenue of expanding to the rest of the world, then there needs to be a forum to, such as um, World Court, such as United Nations, uh, push for change there, push mm -hmm. for you know, advancement, but, but that we ourselves have no standing to take action. Mm -hmm. Okay, over here, thank you. If this was his policy, why did he state that, that we were going to make the world free for democracy before we went into Iraq? Might I remind everyone, we went in for weapons of mass destruction. When we didn't find them, then this became our policy. To justify our behavior. Oh, he did. That was to justify our behavior. It's our justification for doing yeah. something pretty He did talk a little bit about democracy as well as weapons of mass destruction beforehand. No, he didn't. Oh, a little bit. I mean, he does, he does mention it in the speeches. I mean, it's not the primary thing, but he does mention it. Because he, he always gives three or four reasons. Uh, why this policy is in our interest um, to do. All right, let me ask a more theoretical question. Um, suppose all human beings do have natural rights. Um, does it follow that they have the capacity to exercise those rights? Or does it follow that they are therefore ready for democratic government if they have those rights? Yes. Thank you. All right. Very good. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, sir.
Well, there are there are tanks rolling over it, and there are bombs, <laughs> and there are rockets falling on it. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Well, uh, I, th I, I think, I, I wouldn't, I don't know, I, I don't presume to speak for the administration on this, but uh, uh, I would say in a way that they've come to the end of the road on the roadmap. I mean, the idea of trading land for peace was basically the idea of the roadmap. And at this point, at least, to the Israelis, it looks as though uh, when they trade land for peace, what they get is war. And so they're not going to trade land for war. Uh, and, that, and until there's some you know, resolution of that, you can't go back to the formula of trading land um, for peace. I, th I think that's the way they see it. And that's, I think, the way the administration probably sees it as well. Right. Oh, no, sure. That's fine. That's fine. Well, there is a, yes, okay, on this question of natural rights and democracy over here. Well, uh, I mean, sometimes in, you know, it, history tells us that some, some conflicts uh, really can only be settled by war. Um, I mean, that seems to be an, an unfortunate truth. Uh, it's, yes, right, yes, bring us back to the founding. Um, you know, you can't, it, the, it's a kind of a diplomatic conceit that you can solve all problems by bringing everyone to the table. But the problem is if the disagreements are deep enough and fundamental enough, that doesn't help. Uh, I mean, you can't, the Civil War is a great example of, you know, there were many, you would think there are many ways to have uh, reached a reasonable agreement that would have headed off that conflict. But in fact, um, uh, this, you know, the South was not prepared to give up its right or what it considered its right to expand slavery into the territories. Uh, and the, uh, the forces of the Union were not prepared to say that uh, to open all the territories to the expansion of slavery, much less to open the, the states already existing to the reintroduction um, of slavery. And if the disagreement is between whether slavery is right or wrong, compatible or not with republicanism, there's no, it's hard to find a middle between those two, uh, those two arguments. As Lincoln himself says, it's like trying to find a man who is neither dead nor alive. You know, trying to find a middle between uh, the position that slavery is good or that slavery is uh, inherently evil. Well, uh, we've, we're running, we've run out of time. Let me just say that a uh, final thing on this question of um, um, global democratization. Um, it really does raise a question that goes right back to the founding, right back to the Declaration of Independence, which is what does it mean to say that all human beings are created equal? Um, what does it mean to say that therefore they have certain rights? Uh, who is to vindicate those rights? Um, is it 
themselves alone who can vindicate them? Um, is it compatible with these rights for others to vindicate them for them without their consent necessarily or w- uh, certainly without their active participation in their own emancipation? Um, is it the case that just because human beings have rights, they therefore should live under a democracy or must live under a democracy, or are there other kinds of regimes that are decent but not democratic that might be um, suitable to them? Uh, and, of course, the even harder question, are there certain peoples uh, in the world who, who may have the right, uh, uh, according to nature, the rights of liberty, but who may not have the capacity to exercise that liberty? That seems a, a harsh conclusion because it's an argument heard often uh, in respect of blacks in the United States uh, in one way or another, that, they had, that maybe they had the rights, but they obviously couldn't be trusted to exercise those rights themselves, so effectively they don't um, have such a guarantee of rights. Uh, and yet, as you find in looking around the world, democracy turns out to be a hard thing to maintain. Um, Rights may be natural, but democracy is not. Democracy is a, is a political construction. It's a re- result of statesmanship, of wisdom, and of the intersection of wisdom with consent. And the more you study the American case, the more you study the rise and uh, maturation of American democracy, I think, uh, the more light it sheds not only on our contemporary politics, but on some of these dilemmas around the world, which appear so intractable perhaps because they are intractable. All right, thanks very much.